All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? How do you get it? We'll deconstruct everything from motivation and mental health to anti-racism and addiction. Ultimately, the goal is to give you the tools and strategies that you need to live your most powerful life, being a force for good in the world and impacting the people around you in a positive way. Powerful is brought to you by me, your host, Jeff Kular. I help people change and build incredible teams. Welcome to the show. A realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship of self. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out. Welcome to today's episode of Powerful. I'm your host, Jeff Coulard. And if you're listening to this on the day that it came out, it's a Thursday. And on Thursdays, I send out a pretty quick newsletter to my community of it's called Thursday Thoughts, and it's got a bunch of ideas about leadership and wellness and life and parenting and, you know, pretty wide range of resources and ideas and strategies and tips and tools for you. And you can sign up at www.jeffcoulard, that's J-E-F-F-C-O-U-I-L-L-A-R-D.com, and hop on that mailing list and you'll get the very next one. All right, today's guest is The Navigator at a place called Work Nicer, which is a co-working space originally located out of Calgary, but expanding rapidly across Alberta and across Western Canada. Um, But when I think about Bob, Bob McInnes, I think about community. Uh, He's been kind of the epicenter of lots of different community building efforts from his time at universities to his time with Brown Bagging for Calgary's Kids, who you might have heard of on this podcast previously. I'm doing some work with them and their new team. And now he's at this co-working space and he's really tasked with building a sense of community. And given the world that we find ourselves in with generally a breakdown in community or polarization of community into communities of divide instead of communities that share common values. I thought that this conversation in particular was going to be a really important one. And Bob didn't disappoint as he never does. Uh, We had a wide ranging conversation about community, community building, the essential ingredients of building community, some practical strategies for how to go about doing that. We talk about Bob's journey to deconstruct his worldview and to reconstruct it um, as we go. Uh, So this is a very fascinating conversation for me to be a part of, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here's Bob McInnes with The Power of Community. Bob, thank you so much for joining me. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So, you know, I've got a ton of questions about that revolve mostly around community building. And so, you know, I see you as someone who spent a lot of intentional time building community in throughout your life and throughout your career. And so I'm, I'm interested because one of the undercurrents that I've noticed in podcast episodes recently with guests is this kind of undertone of individualism versus community. Um, and so I'm really curious about advice, strategies, tips you've got for people who find themselves in a role of trying to foster community, things you've learned through the journey, any interesting stories that we have or that you have um, about that would be, would be a wonderful place to start. I think that the, the definition of community has evolved for me. Uh, it begins with the word common. And if we try to bring a group of individuals together, without having something in common, we 
we, we see fragmentation happen really quickly. Um, I don't think it's as rigid as it used to be. Communities of ethnicity, language, race. Um, I, I think communities ebb and flow episodically around ideas, around opportunity, around geography and proximity. The beginnings of the community work start as being a parent of four kids and and the four active kids and realizing that there were in some cases 30 or 40 other parents in the same situation where three kids are going in three different directions and you need to learn to rely on each other in some way um, can you ferry my kids to the hockey game and I'll take your daughter with my son to the band practice and and in that in that reciprocity um, there's a tr the transaction could simply be that effort that happens but if you can move beyond that to something that is relational you begin to create a community um, so my when my kids were really young uh, we had a number of communities that were that revolved around the activities of our children as our kids aged out of that or grew out of the interest. Um, those the, the point I'm making here is that community is episodic. So th those communities faded away. Um, those people, uh, as I think about it right now, are no longer part of my life. Um, so there isn't there there isn't a permanence uh, in community. That shifted to when we were involved in churches and church planting and trying to create a common view around a set of myth mythological principles is how I would describe them today um, but also around a practice so this is the shift now in my history goes from from this this idea of reciprocity and transactional to this process of, of bringing people together into a relationship and understanding that if we, if we do more than just share a common view, but we share a common practice, a way of living together. Um, and there, there were some amazing experiences of, of sharing a Wednesday meal every Wednesday and a, and a ritual of it and a tradition of it. And I think that's the, while I'm no longer, uh, I no longer carry any, religious affiliation I see the I see the magic that happens around that kind of community the, that that there is a tradition that you know every Wednesday or Sunday or at, at a specific time you are in a specific place with specific people yeah. do you think uh, that's about certainty in an uncertain world like is it kind of a, a security yeah, thing I, for people I think that the, that's I think that's the basis of religion um, is to is to calm and qualm the fears that we have. I think once you get to a, a place where the relationship is has grown beyond the I, the theology, um, I, I think that it now becomes curiosity about what else is possible. Um, I, if we live. If we live in certainty, I don't think we actually have a need for community. Hmm. Uh, Interesting. Let's, uh, let's talk about that a little bit, because 
you know, I want to kind of maybe frame the current problems mm-hmm. that you see with community in today's increasingly polarized world. I think it's fair to say that we're becoming more insulated and more polarized. Uh, certainly in Western mm-hmm. societies, that's a problem that I see. But when you think of um, community, what's the health of community as an idea in our society and as a practice? You know, if it is a very active thing, not a passive thing, um, how, how well are we doing it? Um, where do you see the biggest gaps or opportunities for us to kind of get back maybe to um, the lost art of community building, which is, you know, something I think about a lot. So I, th- I think we are doing a better job of community building than we were in the early 21st century, um, which led us to some polar politics creating communities of divide rather than communities that unite. Um, if I can just follow up on that, I, I think that that's where I see the most... I see, I see certainty dividing communities the most, is if I am sure that I am right and that my worldview is the only worldview, I don't need to expand my circle of influence and the people around me. I, I have the echo chamber that is, my, that is mine. I, I think certainty also doesn't require any courage, and, cur- and community does require courage. It requires vulnerability, which is, um, and transparency and honesty, all of these words, and loyalty, all these words that, that have been disenfranchised um, in, uh, in the last hundred years. The, these used to be words that inspired, and now these words, I think those are words that instill fear. Uh, I, I think the most dangerous part of, of certainty is that it... it it curbs all our curiosity. Um, I, you stop thinking about the as yet unimagined uh, because there's no need to. Uh, my neoliberal politics are the only thing that I need to know. Um, and if I believe them fully, without exception, I will succeed. The, the path is the straight line. Community is, is a dotted line that, that, that probably isn't ever straight. There, there are, there are, there are feelings that are hurt and moments uh, of great elation. <laughs> there are, there are uh, acceptance and rejection moments. That's what community community doesn't. Uh, community isn't some sort of um, utopian uh, idea. Community is living life together, understanding each other and understanding the frailty that we all carry. Um, I can be, I can be charming in one minute minute and I can be callous in the next. And sometimes I don't even see that I've been callous. Um, and, and the F word becomes forgiveness becomes part of what community is. Um, when it's done best, when community is done best, it is in those moments when I can say, Jeff, this is how what you just did, said, impacted me. Is that what you meant? And, and, and as clumsy as that sounds, the, the awkwardness of it, I think, if I said that right, it, the awkwardness of it rings authentic. Um, I'm off script. I'm not... I'm, I'm in, I'm delved, I've delved into an unknown 
Because you could say, yes, that's exactly what I intended. I intended to hurt your feelings, Bob. And, and that would be unexpected to me. But I have to, I have to keep moving that awkwardness forward into a place where, where it, it, we, it's on the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I spend a lot of time now in leadership development, and a lot of it is around impact and intention and making sure that those two things are as close together as possible because it's the the incongruency, yeah. it's the gap between our impact and our intention that really disrupts community, right? Yeah. And really, um, and the inability to see our impacts, I think, is a big one. You've mentioned curiosity a couple of times um, today so far. What are you most curious about these days? What uh, What is stoking your curiosity fire? And what, do, what, what have you learned recently that has uh, been new to you? I think that I'm curious why the universe is bringing people from my past back into my life. Um, and, and I use the term universe to mean whatever the listeners need it to mean. Um, but someone who introduced me to Danielle Smith, who was then the leader of the wild rose party has come back into my life and we're, and we are connecting. And he reminded me that when he introduced us, he he said, I think the two of you should know each other. She said, Danielle said, your reputation precedes you. I'm assuming you're a lefty. And I said, yours precedes you, and I'm assuming you're not. And we sat at the Auburn Saloon for an hour or longer having a beer, and we wrote down the 14 things that are most important for our province at that, at that time. And this is a dozen years ago. Um, and they were all the same. It wasn't the intention. It was the how. It wasn't the why. It, it was the how. Um, and um, she became a great friend, um, still is. Um, we disagree, but we, in our relationship, we, we, are, we are curious to understand. That's where I'm going with this, is that, that I think we've both learned, and I, and I try to be this everywhere, curious to understand rather than curious to win. Um, I'm not, I used to be. I used to be curious to get you to say something so that I could back you onto an island and then hold my hands up and say... Temporarily <laughs> win yeah, in this yeah. infinite game that yeah, we're part of. Yeah, yeah. Um, now I really am curious to understand. Um, and I did a four-year deconstruction of my worldview, um, and I'm still rebuilding all of that, and I've come to understand how fragile what I held to be... Um, completely and inerrantly true. Can we dig into that yeah. deconstruction a little bit? Because that fascinates me. Um, my background's in addiction and mental health treatment, and there's a lot of deconstruction that happens in something like addictions treatment, where you have some beliefs and you have some patterns and you have some behaviors that have served a purpose, and getting to touch that, really, like really understand that purpose so that you can then let it go and find a new way to meet that. Like, um, it's very fascinating territory for me. Um, and how identity, like our individual identities are just woven into everything that we do. And, um, what was that process like? Well, how did you do that process? You know, what is that? Can you walk us through it? Um, so I, so I ended up there because I understood, I, I came to a place in my life that I realized that I didn't handle failure or success well. Um, uh, I, I took everything personally. Failure is, which was, is a, was a form of rejection. But uh, um, 
receiving awards and accolades and building organizations to a place of success was equally disruptive to me for a whole whole history of childhood scripts. Um, but I would eventually sabotage the success. Um, and when I examined that, I realized that it was an intentional sabotage. Um, so I, 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 I pondered and wondered that for a long time as to what, where did that come from? And I started writing every morning for an hour and stream of consciousness. And I would land in, I would land in some miry stuff that I was stuck in believing. Um, the, the, the background of masters in divinity. So this theological, ideological background, uh, we live in a Western world that has a whole overlay of economics and relationship that's built on top of that. Um, and I, I kept digging until I would find what I thought was the brick that all of that was built on and, and then play an imaginary game of meditating about pulling that brick out. And eventually I was able, eventually over, it took four years to do this, eventually I was actually able to remove the brick and discard it and realize that Contrary to what I believed, so there was there were, there were moments when when I pull a brick and I I say to myself, if I no longer need that, what is there? What else is there? And it would create a fearful moment until I recognized that as soon as I took the brick out and asked myself that question, I was starting to say everything. I wasn't eliminating possibilities; I was opening possibilities. So that's what the four-year exercise was, is that I examined my political values, my religious values, my, my relationship values, my understanding of, of legacy and success, my, my views around relationship and marriage and family. And, um, uh, and, 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 and I got to an exhausted point where I, I, for me, I recognized that I couldn't take this any further, and I began to rebuild on a new foundation um, that is less, much less certain. Uh, there's an expression. Um, let's see if I can get it right. Um, st- strong views, loose, loosely held. Um, uh, I think I, I live that way now. Um, it, it was a turning point in what I do with my life. I, I get to travel. I get to work. I get to ask ridiculously impossible questions to answer. Um, I get to speak awkwardness into the world and, and watch the resonance of that um, in other people. That, that it's, they're, they're almost thirsty because there's a superficial world that we have accepted and adopted. And when someone gets off script and asks a a ridiculously impossible, unexpected, and awkward question, it it flips some small switch. And my experience is that we see the other side. We don't necessarily grasp it. We don't even want to climb climb over that little fence to get there. Um, But we begin to see... Uh, example, um, 
I helped rewrite the Education Act for the state of California. And it took me four winters to push the state beyond an, an, an understanding that education was to equip people. Um, I never believed that. Even when I worked at, at a university, I didn't believe it was to equip people. But our education system, not just ours, but not just California, because I think my, much of our education system and the one that we're moving back to in Alberta is about equipping people for work. Um, but uh, after four years of, of being a disruptor, I, uh, I saw that Education Act get enacted in 2019, and I could see my fingerprints. I could see those awkward questions, this attempt to go beyond that basic understanding. That's the curiosity side of me too, is what happens if, what happens if I ask this question right now? And if I was better at it, I might also ask what happens if I ask this question tomorrow. Um, I'm an impatient imperfectionist with a significant action bias. <laughs> so I, I, so you're a disruptor. <laughs> so I jump in, not real, not always with the best of timing. Um, uh, sorry, I forgot what the question was. Oh, that's okay. That's this podcast is for big questions <laughs> and and long answers. So this is great. Um, what I guess what's one of those big questions that you're asking yourself with regards to community because you're. The role that I know you in right now is you're a navigator at Work Nicer, and so you help the team navigate the complexities of building community and building an organization um, and building a space where no one works alone or no one succeeds alone. Um, Tell me more about building community and some of the questions that you're kind of wrestling with around what that looks like. Um, So there's there's everything seems to have a, a corollary to it. We are building a community where no one succeeds alone, and we're building a community where boundaries are respected. Um, but the boundaries blur the ability to to live in real relationship. So where do we where do we encourage boundary? We obviously we encourage it in the, in any area that might. Be abusive, or impropriety might rise up, but we encourage it in areas where people deeply get to know each other. Um, we are a co-working community where people get shit done and people cry together. Um, there are tears every day. Um, I have become more emotional the last four years with work nicer than I've ever been because I, I've, I'm at the new boundary is letting the guards down. Um, um, and by modeling that, that vulnerability, we, we see others who have been ready or are getting ready to be vulnerable test that. Um, from we don't know how to do community and maybe we never have. We need to learn. So I'm not saying we aren't doing community. I'm saying we don't know how inherently Mm -hmm. we need to learn to do community. 
Yeah, that's uh, the, the factors that yeah. like community strikes me as an outcome. Yes. You know, I do this a lot with yeah. teams where they're like, we need to, we need to trust each other. I was like, yeah, trust yeah. is an outcome of behaviors, yeah. right? And so what are some of those community building behaviors? So I hear vulnerability, yeah. the ability to express kind of true, authentic emotion, be honest and vulnerable, yeah. um, curiosity uh, instead uh, of certainty. Yeah. Is there other pieces? I'm going to come back to trust because I yeah. think we see trust as a lens, um, that we view each other and our world through. Excuse me. And if if I am viewing this community and this conversation through a lens of trust, it is invisible. I don't think about the lens. But if I'm viewing this conversation or our community through a lens of distrust, it never goes away. Um, and so the damage that that lens of distrust creates... Um, doesn't I don't think it in any way um, matches the the benefit that we get from being distressful, and the benefit that we suspect that we get from being distressful is safety. Um, um, but the mediocrity that arises out of safety, um, the, the, the workaday drone that get on the train at 7.45 and work for somebody because it's safe and get off the train at home and rinse and repeat. Um, uh, I think we've missed, we're missing, we are missing an opportunity to live a fully examined and engaged life. And, and trust opens the door to that. Will there be Will there be moments when, when something unexpected, something unacceptable, something tragic rears its head because you trusted? Yes, <laughs> I, I can't say no. I can't, I can't say no. That, that they're, that, but but in each of those, if we if you continue to just understand that that was that ad hoc arbitrary moment rather than a rule that you can now say all people with blue eyes and red hair or people that have earrings or people like people who are over six feet tall or like we 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 we're we're trying to simplify how we build relationships which is the beginning of community and why are we doing that like why do you think the there's an inherent desire to simplify, get rigid, um, get certain. I, I could go to a conspiracy theory. <laughs> I don't think it is a conspiracy theory. I don't think it is a conspiracy, but I think that there is an indoctrination happening um, that still benefits someone other than each of us and all of us. Um, our economic system is built around individualism and uh, the strongest succeed and um, and that Compe- good competition guy, yeah, is good, good guys and, finished last yeah. and, um, um, and and we've all had even even with all that indoctrination and even the moments that I live that in a day there's a there is a an intuition that says that's not true there's an intuition that says that says collaboration takes me farther. There's an intuition that tells me that 10 of us pulling on that same rope will not only make the work easier, but we'll be able to pull that, that, that cause, that issue forward faster, further, 
um, uh, and all of our, uh, like all of the the ways that we divide society seems to have found its way into this same mindset. The it is this is just this isn't just the for profit world, the 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 charitable world, the non profit world is equally and excessively competitive uh, to the point that um, in Alberta the five wingnut rule allows five people with a with who are prepared to sign a paper and have 50 bucks to start a new nonprofit because ABC charity isn't doing it the way that they would do it there's no there there is no limitation or control there's no there's no kill switch in our system um, and the competition becomes a blood sport around around government funding and and major donor sources um, so it's this the this isn't and I think in the public service we're seeing that now we're seeing um, a public service competition um, measuring results that that are part of the audit culture. If you measure the wrong thing, the audit culture leads you to this place that that it isn't about my health. It's about whether the doctor spends 15 minutes or 10 minutes or 25 minutes and gets $48. Um, um, and it, that's not just an economic concern to me. That's actually a health of the species concern to me, is that we, are, we have devolved what was a healthcare system into a management system. Um, and in that management system, we've created a hierarchy where I'm not responsible for my health. I've outsourced the responsibility. I understand the outsourcing of the practice of medicine, but I don't understand how we got to the place where my health isn't my responsibility. I can make lifestyle choices um, that, that take me to a place um, where where the system is supposed to fix me. Uh, our education system, at least public education, at, at, the, at the elementary and junior high level, um, ha, has, that, has components of that where parents arrive with their children and, and push them into the school to be fixed by the system. Um, when I, I glibly said I worry about the, the species. Um, we are at, I think we, this is going to sound um, hyperbol hyperbolic, like a hyperbole, um, but I think we're at a new precipice where um, if we don't make some significant decisions and changes about how we live in community together, um, my grandchildren will not have grandchildren. The species, it's that close. We are, we are on the verge of fragmentation. If I can toss climate change out of this equation. I think it is a big issue, but I can toss it out because I think that we are going to eradicate the species for a whole bunch of other reasons, and social inequity uh, being one of them, the division, uh, which seems to be vitriolic in every form, um, uh, the, the divided states of America um, that is an intentional division by, by both left and right. That, um, we we're seeing that infiltration into Canada. We're I think we're seeing it all over the world with 
Brexit and Wexit and um, that, um, and and I'm not I'm not undermining those desires for uh, autonomy. Um, in fact, there are lots of reasons that that I don't support the one world, one government view. <laughs> That, that that's the way we should be heading. But I, I think it is that we've been, the impetus for all of that has, has circled around the wrong metric. And the metric is, can we expo- expand our economy? Or can we increase our GDP? Or our debt-to-GDP ratio? Can we, um, you know, the, the, the audit culture is part, of, is part of what I'm not calling conspiracy because I don't think that this was this was created by nefariousness. It was created accidental byproduct yeah, yeah. of human ingenuity gone yeah. gone wrong or gone yeah. sideways. Um, I've, I've been thinking about uh, this year in themes, and so my theme for January for myself and for the podcast and for just generally thinking about life was gratitude, because uh, that's how I wanted to start my 2020 was kind of really digging into some gratitude practice for myself and having those conversations. Uh, February is actually about ownership. And so when I hear you talking about, you know, people taking responsibility, I think ownership of, of community ownership of self, just generally speaking, like, um, what do you think of when you think of ownership and what people should be taking ownership of, um, in community. Right. So, you know, I mean, I mean, I said, I've said this to you before. I have a currency bias too. So currency being what, what am I thinking about as a result of what I've read? And last night I was reading John Locke and Locke reminded me, Locke didn't necessarily, Locke led me to start thinking about the 1949 universal declaration of human rights. And I, I imagined before I fell asleep last night, what if that had been a document like Locke would have looked for of rights and responsibilities? He would have used different language. I can't, I can't, I can't think of how he might have phrased that. But for me, the, the path from 49 to where we are today is really two generations, and that's all it took is for us to enshrine these rights without a companion responsibility. Um, and we live in a world where my, as an observer, I observe a world with very little consequence. Um, and, I, and I live that. Um, I jaywalk 10 or 12 times every day. I cross, I cross on red lights um, because there's this, this selfish side of my brain that says, I can take care of myself. I know when it's safe to do that. But when I'm questioned about this, I say, the two times I've got a ticket, I just took the ticket and paid it. That was the consequence of my, my choice to be in, an independent traveler in the world. <laughs> um, I think I would feel better about where we're going as a society if all of those things that I find disturbing that people do to each other, that they would just accept ownership of it. Um, uh, One of my sons, when he was 18, came home late at night. Uh, His friends brought him home, and uh, he had received... he had been out partying and had got a 
driving under the influence. Um, and for the next six months without a vehicle and without a license, he, through winter, managed to get himself to work every day on a bicycle with his tools on his back. Um, if this doesn't sound like I'm proud of that act of him accepting full responsibility for getting a DUI. Like it's a, it's a weird, a weird example, but he under, he actually said later that when he unlocked his car, he, he could hear me saying there are consequences. And having said that to himself, he accepted the consequences. Um, we, we uh, at work nicer. And I think everywhere that I've been able to be part of building community, we talk a lot about the impact of our actions and inactions on others who are part of the community. And, and once we talk about it, then we need to walk it and we need to demonstrate that we're prepared to take action that isn't necessarily measured in the same way that we might measure financial success. Um, we have, we, in my career, I have, I have sent money back to the government saying it, uh, it would be morally reprehensible for us to accept your funding um, because you are the contributing factor to this issue. Um, we have, at WorkNicer, we have fired members who, after effort, it became apparent to the team that they would never understand what we were trying to build. Um, and when we fire a member, um, that's a significant number of dollars every year that we're that we're t we're saying we don't want because there are because your actions or inaction or your values or behavior don't fit. Um, so it comes back to where we started: is that that. Not everyone can live in community together. Um, we can't build community artificially, I don't think, um, unless we find that moment where Danielle Smith and I were sitting with, with a reputation that we each brought, and we found something common. Um, and, and it was a forced exercise that time, but I've used that forced exercise now. Um, I've asked, what is most important in this moment? Well, um, um, I have said, I don't know, Jeff, what it is that I have done to take us to this moment where, where we are such, so at odds. But for whatever it, whatever it was, I apologize. Can we start anew? Can we, can we begin again? Um, and can we begin by finding something in common so that we are standing closer together? Because when we don't have something in common, we're standing across the chasm. And, and that forces us to shout at each other, either in reality or figuratively shout. And when we are shouting, um, it, makes, it makes it really difficult to come into community. Yeah, I think it, it just adds to the noise. And and we get good at filtering out the noise um, in the world. You know, I talk a lot about meaning and what's most meaningful for people. And that's, to me, that exercise you did with Danielle at the bar is that, like, let's sit down and what's most meaningful to you, what's most meaningful to me. And inevitably, when I do that exercise with, with people, even people in conflict, those lists are very similar. You know, the order might be off a little bit or, you know, might be different language for it. But I think we're all striving to find 
kind of moment to moment what's most meaningful for us and and bigger picture you know purpose and meaning in life um let's talk about meaning and meaningfulness what's most meaningful for you what drives the work that you do here um around building community because that you know we've kind of articulated that's a pretty messy endeavor is to try and figure out how to build community so what what's so attractive for you about it and what uh yeah so there i mean there is a side of me that the curiosity makes this a social experiment um, and seeing how far we can push outside of what is a prescription. But I think it's all embedded in, in making a difficult life, a difficult life that is really difficult. Like the struggle, uh, uh, in this case here, the struggle of entrepreneurs um, is real. And it's lonely, and um, there isn't a lot of support. Um, and when you are when you are in a position where you you don't know how your cash flow will match the balance on the balance sheet, sheet this month, um, it feels like you're the only one in the world that's ever gone through this. And so, the community that we get to create provides both a proximity and a, a and a geographical space to come together and understand that you're not alone, that, that there are others today going through that same thing, but there are others who have gone through it and found a, a way to manage that. And so the wealth of experience and wisdom gets shared. Um, I, I've come to a place where I, I believe that the, this artisan guild world that, that, is like co-working is a place where um, we can test the next idea, the next innovation. So that's appealing to me. Um, watching the joy, being an observer and a participant in the joy of success, or however someone else is measuring it, even if I don't understand how that measurement would work for me, what, being being embraced by it and being embraced um there's i said there's 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 tears um there's lots of hugs that that this allows um yeah and and i think there's a greater good that uh, we we have taken in our in our guiding principles to be an important part of the community but we see that community as the 700 members who are part of paying work nicer, as crassly as that sounds, but also the neighborhoods that we are part of. We we intentionally have located our outposts in places where having 75, 80, 100, 200 new businesses move in will be good for the economy of that neighborhood. So the you know, we're on 17th, we're at the 17th Avenue location. When we moved in, all the talk was about the downfall of 17th Avenue and the 62 businesses that have left because of road construction and business, a whole, like, whole bunch of reasons. And we brought 75 businesses in. And we know that there's two restaurants in, within easy walking distance whose lunch receipts have quadrupled since we walked in but we see our community bigger than that we see that we see our community um, as being our city 
and we contribute financially through 100 Men Who Give a Damn, but also, also we contribute by articulating a different view to civic officials. We, we expand that, we've expanded that view of community to a world where we can, because of the assets that we have, we can be part of a fundraiser for last week run, run for Water, an international organization. Um, uh, um, I think that's all of that. It, it just it, it brings meaning uh, that, that maybe presents itself as, as prideful joy. I didn't think, I'm just thinking that through right now, but, but, um, and the, uh, the other thing I'd like to say, Jeff, is that I'm not sure that that, will, that, that that's not just an arbitrary where I am today because that meaning might shift as we move the, as we move this business plan forward. Um, and we get to you know, six, seven, eight, outposts in two different provinces and five different cities and that, that I, I I don't know if this meaning is scalable but I'm okay with that because I think that I think that scale might be another one of the lies that we've just bought into that everything needs to be scalable um, and that meaning has to be fixed and the thing that's important now is going to be important in the future you know it sounds like going through your deconstruction phase and now into your reconstruction, maybe a piece of that is letting go of the certainty that this thing that's most meaningful now is going to continue and being okay with meaning shifting, um, over time. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, I mean, there's lots of conversation about common sense that has bubbled up in the last five or six or seven years when it, as it pertains to the relationship that citizenry has with, government but most of the, the people using that language are talking about what they would see as common common sense from the 18th 19th through early 20th century and uh, I don't live in a world that looks at all like the 20 20th century anymore the attitudes and values that I hold about diversity um, just as one example, um, are different than they would have been if, if this was rather than this was 1920, rather than 2020. So, I think I think all of that certainty stuff has a best before date. We I, I I have learned because I deconstructed that there are some things that I need, and in certain situations, I want to do what is the easiest thing to do is to revert back to the certainty when. My dear friend and someone who the world lost a couple of Februarys ago passed, Suzanne West, um, who was building a, a different view of how the world might think about energy. And, and she left us unexpectedly. Um, I, had no, I had no base to deal with that, and I was angry. And there was a temptation to revert to that to reach back into my life and find that moment that I might have said she's in a better place, because um, um, uh, I needed I needed a fix like a, like an addiction. It was I was addicted to to not having to work through that. Um, I did work through it, and it, and it ended up being um, an ugly cry at the top of the 
McHugh Bluff stairs where her and I ran, um, where every orifice of my body was leaking because I was I, I had to cleanse myself of this anger and grief that I was feeling, and I worked through it a different way than I would have five or six years ago. Um, yeah, uh, this is, I I try to so everything that I've said today I. I should have disclaimed as descriptive rather than prescriptive, uh, because this this is how I've worked through all of this for me. Um, I've been married to the same person for 44 years who would never manage to go through this the way I have. Um, she provides me with with a base and a, a security um, and a challenge every day. Um, uh, we live happily ever after because we work hard every day. Um, I, I think that's part of maybe an old understanding and a new understanding of, of what relationship needs to be. We have four kids and 11 get grandkids that, that I, I'm surrounded with sometimes too much. Um, and, and they are sensitive, they being all of them, even the five-year-old knows when Papa has had too much. Um, but I wouldn't have it any other way today. Um, and I know that, that at some point, um, the mix of our lives isn't going to be the same. Um, we live where we live in Calgary because of the gravity that is all of that and the gravity of the opportunities. Um, there are places we've lived where the weather is better, the opportunity to paddleboard or surf every day. But, but, um, um, I don't know whether it's snowing today, but it, it could be, and, and, and tomorrow it probably will be. Um, it, it, we've learned to adapt to that. Um, that, that. That certainty that it will all be the same impacts how we see tomorrow, not just... February 13th, but February 13th, 2050. If I, if, if I allow certainty to, have, to direct my imagining what the future will look like, it looks a lot like today. Um, yet there's a reality that by 2050, um, which is far enough away that... Um, most of the people that I know won't be alive. <laughs> and surely 2100, which is the next, that next marker out there, nobody that I know will be alive. Um, the reality is that it won't look at all like today. My mom's 92. Um, she has marveled at being able to chop the head off a chicken and prepare it for supper and milk a cow and use a cell phone and an iPad in her lifetime. She's lived this great journey. Uh, we were taking her home one to Saskatchewan one day and she said she had noticed that none of the houses, none of the farmyards had telephone lines running to them anymore. And when she was growing up, when a, uh, when a house got a telephone line, it was, it was a moment of success that they, they had achieved something. And she said, and now I realize that that marker that she had, used her whole life was irrelevant. Um, so it was temporary. It yeah. was transitory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know you don't want to be prescriptive and 
but I think there's something to that unlearning. You know, a lot of the leadership development work that I do is founded on we have to unlearn some things before we even bother trying to learn new new skills. And I liken it to, you know, I, I like to woodwork a little bit in my spare time, which isn't a lot, but um, I built a kitchen table over the summer. Um, and the most important part of that process was the sanding, right? Was taking off the edges, taking off, like sanding it down to a place where I could put a finish on it that would reflect what I wanted it to look like. And I don't think that we spend enough time sanding ourselves, right? Especially when we're in in leadership roles or parenting roles, we tend to be certain about certain things, um, jump to judgment really quickly, um, to action, to fix things, whatever the kind of default tendency is. So maybe some advice or some thoughts on the unlearning process. And so it sounds like reflective uh, morning journaling was, you know, an important piece of that practice for you. Is there anything else that you would recommend or that you've had some success with or? Yeah, I, I so I do have a, a, a routine um, every morning. The first hour of every day is about my health. Um, and that includes journaling and meditation. It always includes physical exercise to the point of exhaustion. Um, in that, and I have I use the exercise and the exhaustion to toss out the ideas and the baggage that I'm carrying from the past that's not relevant to me anymore. And it sounds like multitasking, but when I'm running along the river, I'm really just single tasking. I'm I'm actually cleansing my brain. So I think that that that's a real to, to not hold on. Um, and I, I and we are we are as a species far more um, adaptable than than I think we even give ourselves credit for. We're all far more capable and remarkable than 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 the world acknowledges. Um, but um, I used to believe that that kind of routine and habit was a handcuff because it it precluded me seeing other opportunities because I was on this one path. I now see this habit as being liberating because it actually allows me, if I make a higher order habit decision, it actually stops me from needing to make a whole bunch of other decisions. There is no decision when I wake up at five o'clock in the morning what I'm going to do for the next hour. I, I, like my, my path is clear uh, to have to go down it, um, but but from the the end of that first hour to the beginning of my last hour every day, um, I get to practice being better. Um, we hear uh, we hear that kind of be better, get better language in our team all day, and and it's internal code. Um, around the idea that practice actually doesn't make perfect practice makes permanent so that's my first hour my last last hour but in between i get to i get to hit the ball into the net and hit the ball into the net and hit the ball into the net and make fine tune adjustments until eventually i hit an ace and 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 i, I not everyone has the same skill set or or tendency or desire that I have, but I think everyone can find a way to be better and do better every day. Uh, and better is is intentionally an elusive 
term. Um, I use a lot of, I intentionally use elusive terms. I, I, I very seldom ask, how are you? I would sooner ask, how satisfied are you? Uh, because I and, and I don't want I would never define satisfied. <laughs> um, I, I, this this is your answer. This is your better. This is. Um, I, I again I come back to being able to ask ridiculous questions, um, and and cultivating that adapt that acceptability for that. Um, the, yeah, I have bookends on my day. The first hour is for my health, and the the last hour is for my intellect. But in between, um, I have a calendar that keeps me moving in some direction. But um, there is a flexibility to that calendar that, if an opportunity like you coming in and and just presents itself, um, that's that's where the day goes. Um, is that productive? not in the way that other teams measure it, but in the way that our team measures it, I would say yes. Um, productivity is another one of those uh, lies of the 90s <laughs> uh, that that is meant to institutionalize individuals rather than, uh, than, than create better citizens, which is, is at a sort of a final note. I, education isn't about equipping people for work. Education is about building better citizens. If you think about the two outcomes, um, the process has to be different. <laughs> From the very onset, the process has to be different. What, where would we be as a society um, if, if every education institution enshrined that the way University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, at, above every doorway at UNC Chapel Hill, it says build better citizens. The school treats that as, as, a, as their guide to every day. If the world did that, I'd, I don't know what it would be like, but I'd be sure be, I'd really be interested in being part of a world where we all understood that that's our goal every day. Yeah. And I think that with that, that's a, that's a great way to wrap up um, the podcast. And I just want to thank you for your time and your thoughts and your insight into all of this. I know that... I'm reminded of a Paul Bourne, uh, Tamarack Institute. He wrote a book called Deepening Community. And I heard him speak one time and he said, it doesn't matter what the problem is, the answer is community. And and I, I firmly believe that. And I've seen it happen for individuals, like I said, in addiction, mental health treatment, very individualized, a hyper-individualized problem that is actually a communal, it's a community problem that arises out of dysfunctional relationships with self and others. And I've seen the healing power of community at a small scale. And I think that we can, you know, not to use you know, scale, it'll scale out to a certain point, but uh, it's really encouraging for me to see places like Work Nicer and the communities that you've built um, take root and start to thrive. Um, it means a lot. So thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you for the invitation. Well, that was just a jam-packed interview full of really great ideas and topics and questions from my good friend, Bob McKinnis, who again is at Work Nicer. And if you are a entrepreneur or a solo freelancer or anyone who finds himself trying to get work done at the kitchen table and would like to surround yourself with an intentional community of entrepreneurs that 
really believe that nobody succeeds alone, then I highly recommend you check out Work Nicer. And there's links in the show notes. I'm sure there's an outpost near you if you're in one of the major centers in Alberta and soon across Western Canada. All right, that's it for today's show. Again, thank you to Bob McKinnis. And if you want to sign up for the newsletter, it is Thursday. And that's the day that I send out my main newsletter for the week, which is a roundup of resources and links to podcasts and and YouTube videos and articles, books, anything that I happen to find that I think is going to help you live your most meaningful life, whatever that means for you and whatever that looks like in your world. And I would love it if you subscribed to the show or drop me a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts these days. It really does help us reach a wider audience and have a bigger impact in the world. Thanks so much and have a wonderful day.